Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's uh, Journal of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior Journal Club webinar, uh, part of our 10 webinar series celebrating the best of JNEB. As the official peer reviewed journal of the Society for Nutrition, Education, and Behavior, JNEB advances nutrition education and behavior related research, practice, and policy. Before we begin, I'd like to go over a few pieces of information. Uh, first of all, captions are available for our live attendees. You can access those from the toolbar at the bottom of your screen. Uh, once we get underway, I will be putting the handout for today's session into the chat. Uh, at the end of the session, we will take questions throughout the presentation. Please feel free to type any questions you may have either into the chat or into the Q&A function also found at the bottom of the screen. When the webinar ends today, you'll be prompted to complete a short survey. Please take a moment to complete the survey as your feedback is greatly appreciated for future SNEB webinars. This webinar is being recorded and will be available free of charge to SNEB members under the webinar section of the website. Finally, watch for a follow-up email to be sent in the next few days that will include a link to the recording for this session the slide handouts, and your CEU certificate for your attendance today. I can now hand things over to our moderator, Dr. Kristen DiFilippo, Teaching Assistant Professor at the University of Illinois. Kristen? Thank you, Paul. Today we have two presenters. Tara Madri is an enrolled citizen of the Salt St. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians, Snapping Turtle Clan, and has been an urban native most of her life. Tara is currently a PhD candidate at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, where she also received an MSPH in human nutrition. Tara's dissertation research is supported by an NH NIH National Research Service Award Fellowship, F31, and uses community-based participatory research in partnership with two urban Native communities to build a culturally grounded nutrition model to inform diabetes prevention efforts. Tara is passionate about urban Native health, movement, food security, food sovereignty, and Indigenous research methods. Kavalin Al Alundez, is a senior public health specialist at the Minneapolis Health Department, where she directly manages and oversees collaborative initiatives with healthcare organizations. Ms. Alandez has over seven years of experience in chronic disease prevention work, including leading adaption and implementation of diabetes prevention and management home visiting program with the Johns Hopkins Center for Indigenous Health. Ms. Alandez holds an MSPH in Health Systems from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and a BS in Food Systems from the University of Minnesota. I want to thank them both for joining us today. And um, at this point, I can pass it over to our presenters. Thank you so much. Um, I'm just going to share my screen. Hopefully everybody can see that now. Thank you so much for having us here. Um, we're excited today to present on our paper published in the Journal of Nutrition, Education and Behavior titled Food Stress and Diabetes Related Psychosocial Outcomes in American Indian Communities, a Mixed Methods Approach. Um, and I'm excited today to be joined by my second author, Kavalin. Um, so we'll go ahead and get started. Before we dive too far into things, we just wanna do our disclosures and acknowledgements. Um, I have no actual or potential conflicts of interest in relation to this presentation, as does my co-presenter, Kavalin. Um, I'm currently um, supported by an NIH nurse, so I have my acknowledgement there for the NIDDK. 
Um, and Cavalin also has an acknowledgement that she um, is currently employed by the City of Minneapolis Health Department, and her views do not necessarily represent the official views of the City of Minneapolis. Um, we also want to acknowledge the funding for this paper. Um, this funding was supported by a National Institute of Mental Health Award um, with a PI, Melissa Walls, um, and a National Institute of Diabetes, Digestive, and Kidney Disease um, Award as well, again, with a PI, Melissa Walls. And then we also just want to start with a, a thank you um, and an acknowledgement of the participants and interviewers for these studies. Um, we're so grateful to, for them and all they've done, um, as well as just trusting us with their stories and giving us the ability to share this paper with you all. Okay, here we have the um, nutrition educator competencies. I think you're probably all aware of these as I think they were posted on the website, so I won't go into super big detail here, but I'm gonna pass it over to my co-author to go into the background. Thank you, Tara. So we wanted to start with giving you all um, some background about this paper and about its contents. So American Indian and Alaska Natives experienced disproportionate rates of type 2 diabetes and food insecurity in the United States. The prevalence of type 2 diabetes among American Indian and Alaska Native adults in the U.S. was 15% from 2017 to 2018, which was nearly twice the rate of diabetes prevalence among non-Hispanic white adults. From 2000 to 2010, 25% of American Indians and Alaska Natives were classified as food insecure. Rooted in a history of settler colonialism, food insecurity is one of many social determinants that affect the risk of type 2 diabetes and its complications among Indigenous individuals. Since time immemorial, Indigenous peoples of what is now known as the Americas have honored their connections to the land and used their place-based knowledge to hunt, fish, gather, and cultivate foods that contribute to a healthy diet. European colonization disrupted traditional subsistence and dietary patterns. While there are countless examples of specific colonial moments that contributed to this disruption, there are a few noteworthy examples I'm going to share today. One was the Indian Removal Act of 1830, which moved many American Indian peoples from their traditional homelands to reservations with unfamiliar landscapes and ecosystems. Additionally, the US government policy of forced placement of American Indian children into federally run boarding schools in late 1800s separated children from familial structures and systems of knowledge share, knowledge sharing that were um, that had previously facilitated the passing on of ecological agricultural and nutritional knowledge during the same time period radical changes to waterways and ecosystems to meet the needs of non-indigenous settlements further disrupted traditional food systems and compromised the ecological integrity of these lands Today, many rural reservation communities continue to have limited access to healthy foods, and many are designated by the USDA as food deserts. Despite these challenges, many American Indian communities have reinvigorated their traditional food systems through food sovereignty movements, which center the interconnectedness of land, people, animals, and food, while providing local solutions to health inequities. So now that we have this historical perspective on this issue, let's return to our discussion of stress and diabetes. Both stress and food insecurity have been associated with increased odds of type two diabetes. And among those living with type two diabetes, food insecurity is associated with psychological distress and poor glycemic control, which can put individuals at greater risk for type two diabetes complications. Unfortunately, Diabetes diagnosis and management also come with their own sets of stressors, including modifying diet habits, 
managing blood glucose levels, new physical limitations, learning to manage chronic pain, new medication costs, and increased vulnerability to other diseases. All of these factors can take a toll on an individual's mental health. Next slide, please. Diabetes distress has been correlated with low adherence to diabetes management behaviors, which are crucial for decreasing an individual's risk of diabetes-related complications. Diabetes empowerment, on the other hand, is a measure of psychosocial self-efficacy as relates to an individual's openness to and ability to implement healthy behaviors. Diabetes distress and empowerment may be important predictors of diabetes management practices that could reduce mortality risk or diabetes-related complications. As such, the potential impacts of food stress on diabetes distress and empowerment may influence the effectiveness of interventions to promote diabetes management and individuals' efforts to manage diabetes. In order to better understand the relationship between psychosocial diabetes outcomes and food-related stress, we used a mixed methods approach to explore the research questions you see on the screen, which are, what was the prevalence of food stress among the American Indian adult population included in the study? What was the association between food stress and diabetes-related psychosocial outcomes, namely diabetes empowerment and distress, among American Indian adults with type 2 diabetes? And how did food stress affect the lives of those living with type 2 diabetes? Next slide. To investigate these questions, we used a convergence model of a mixed methods triangulation study to explore the prevalence and characteristics of food stress as both a proxy for and expansion of the idea of food insecurity. We examined the constellation of food-related stressors that, while they included adapted questions from the USDA food insecurity screener, went beyond conventional food insecurity measures to include participation in food assistance programs, time limitations for acquiring and preparing food, and whether participants were on diabetes-specific diets. We termed this entire constellation of stressors, food stress. On the screen, you can see a visual representation of the data sources for the mixed methods analysis and summary of our overall approach, which I will detail further in the following slides. Next slide, please. The quantitative data for this study came from Gathering for Health, a collaborative study with five tribal reservation communities in Minnesota and Wisconsin, focused on psychosocial stress and type two diabetes. A simple random sample generated by tribal clinic staff, um, review of clinic patient records was used for study recruitment. Potential participants were contacted by trained community interviewers from their own community, screened for study eligibility and formally invited to participate. The final analytical sample was 192 individuals. These participants were interviewed four times in six month intervals, starting in 2014 to 2016. The survey instrument for the study was primarily informed by focus group discussions, which I will share more about in a moment. The identified measures were reviewed by community research councils comprised of community members and were adapted for community and cultural relevance. The measures used are on the screen and included the diabetes distress scale two, an adapted diabetes empowerment scale short form, a six month history of receiving food assistance and questions related to participant demographics. Generalized estimation equations were used to account for the nested structure of the data. For the models predicting diabetes distress and empowerment, a normal distribution with an identity link function was used with an unstructured correlation structure. 
We examined the bivariate association of each food stress or diabetes related psychosocial outcome and an adjusted model with all food stress, demographic and time variables included. We also examined the interaction effects of all food stress variables on one another in separate models. Next slide, please. Qualitative data for the study derived from two different projects. The first was Gathering for Health, which was previously described, and involved five focus groups with American Indian adults living with type 2 diabetes in five different communities in 2013. 42 individuals participated in these focus groups. A second study, Minogijad, or A Good Day, was a collaborative pilot study with two reservation communities in the Midwest and focused on mental health and type 2 diabetes. In the winter and spring of 2011, each community held six focus group discussions. A total of 12 focus groups were conducted with 95 participants. In both studies, focus group facilitators were selected by community research council members and were members of their respective communities. A mix of purposive and con convenience sampling was used to generate the participant lists. Meals and honoraria were provided to the participants. Qualitative data was coded using a deductive approach on the basis of the quantitative findings. First, one author open-coded transcripts to detect any portion of focus group discussions related to food-associated concepts. This process resulted in 14 distinct codes that were further condensed into similar topics and themes. Second, two authors coded the food-related data independently and met with a third author to reach consensus on final codes and themes related to food stress. While the qualitative and quantitative data were collected at different points, analyzing them concurrently using the convergence model of a mixed methods triangulation study was useful for holistic understanding and interpretation of the phenomena under discussion and aided us in pursuit of understanding the complex relationships between food stress, diabetes empowerment, and diabetes distress. I'll turn it over to Tara to discuss our results. Thank you, Caitlin. Um, so looking at our quantitative results, we want to just start by sharing the demographics of our quantitative sample. Um, so you'll see here some numbers, and there's a lot of numbers here, so don't get overwhelmed. Um, our average age of participants was 46.3. Um, we had a high proportion of female participants, um, and the majority of our participants also lived on reservation. And I want to highlight that that is not a normal experience for American Indians broadly. About 70% of American Indians broadly live in urban areas, but because our sample was reservation-based, it was about 80% um, living on reservation and the other um, percentages living close by, but not necessarily on their home reservation. Um, as far as education, you see that the majority of our sample falls with a high school diploma or GED or less. So you see about 45% um, with a high school diploma, GED or less, um, and about 40% of our sample having achieved some college and a very small proportion achieving uh, college graduation. You'll see again um, for income, that's a per capita income. So per um, individual in the household, the income was about $9,780, which is quite low. Um, and you also see that with for participants with diabetes, which was, was our sample, um, they've been living with diabetes for about 1.6 years at the time they were surveyed. And then moving into the food stress stuff, which is really what we're here to talk about, you'll see um, proportions of the different food stressors, which you'll see on the left, money. So having money for food, um, available foods, having time to prepare or shop for foods, access to desired foods, and special diet. 
Um, you'll see proportions at each of the waves they were surveyed as well as any wave. And I just wanna highlight that looking at the bottom there, that of our sample, 92.2% .2 had experienced at least one food stressor at any point in the survey. So it's important to note that's a high proportion that have experienced some level of food stress. Then at the bottom two, we have um, our diabetes distress and empowerment measures. Okay, so to highlight the models, um, again, I didn't want to show you a ton of tables because I don't, I personally don't enjoy looking at them, but I want to highlight the important things that popped out. So for unadjusted models, we saw that not having enough money for food, being on a special diet, so for example, that could be a diabetic-friendly diet, or receiving food assistance was associated with increased diabetes distress. And in adjusted models, we saw two things really pop out, two combinations of those stressors pop out as significant. So the first one was not having enough money for food and not having enough time for cooking or shopping or food-related activities. And the second set being inadequate food access and being on a special diet. Again, we're associated with increased diabetes distress. Flipping that and looking more at the positive things, thinking about diabetes empowerment, um, there were still a few things that um, were associated with decreased diabetes empowerment. So in an unadjusted models, again, we have not having enough access to food, which I think is probably unsurprising to all of us, not having enough time for shopping and cooking, and lack of access to wanted types of foods all decrease diabetes empowerment. And then in adjusted models, not having enough money for food and being on a special diet were really associated with decreased diabetes empowerment. Okay, so the qualitative results. This is really like my favorite thing. I'm a qualitative person at heart. I do mixed methods work, but qualitative stuff is really where my heart is. Um, so people said a lot of really great things and I wish we had time to share with you all of the quotes, but I picked one for each of our five major themes. Um, the one about food access. So we had a participant say, you go to the nutritionist and she tells you what you're supposed to eat. And especially up in their home reservation community, we can't have those foods all the time. We can't follow the right diet because we can't get the right foods. And I want to highlight, like, I think that quote just really summarizes it all. If you don't have the money, if you don't have the time, if you don't have the access to foods, you can't follow the right diet. How are you supposed to manage your diabetes? So I think that one summarizes really most of what we're here to talk about. Um, moving on to nutrition support programs. So for this community, that would include some of the major ones that I think we all think of, thinking about the Women, Infant, and Children Supplemental Nutrition Program, um, the SNAP program, and then general food assistance. But in reservation communities, there's a few additional supports. So we often hear those called commodities, or you might hear it called the Food Distribution Program on Indian Reservations, or FIDIPR. Um, so this next theme about those sort of nutritionist support programs a participant said, I think a big part of it, the changing your eating style is hard, but when you have a lot of patients that may be getting commodities, there's nothing there that is really good for a diabetic. And that really speaks to the history that Kavalin sort of started us off with about the commodity supplemental food program and how it was used to help us in this transition period, but it didn't necessarily contain foods that were best for our health. And that has improved in recent years, but is still not wonderful diet quality yet. And then for the impact of money on diet quality or not having enough financial resources, a female participant said, for me, it's a money thing. I can't buy the food I'm supposed to eat, so I have to buy the food I'd like to eat. So I just buy whatever I need instead of buying like fresh vegetables all the time and stuff. And then related to that, this whole idea of a diabetic friendly diet, transitioning maybe to a healthier diet can be difficult for a lot of our participants. And one person said, and another stressor too, the whole eating thing, 
I was never ever told what I could and what I couldn't eat. And it kills me every day when I walk by and I see something that I know I can't have it. It's torture. The whole food part is a stressor because you got to count the calories and the sugars and all that. Just, I don't have time for it, but now I got to make time for it before I never had to look at the labels. It sucks. I think anybody who's had to, you know, track a particular macronutrient or micronutrient knows how, um, how burdensome it is to start to track some of those things. So, and then this is maybe, I don't, we're not supposed to have favorite quotes, but this one might be my favorite interchange from a focus group. A participant said, here's some stress, sit down and watch everybody eat when I can't eat nothing. And somebody replied to him and said, that's right. Feeling like you can't even enjoy the meal with anybody. I see a lot of people talking about fry bread and we can't eat that fry bread like they talk about. And so here participants are really talking about something that's really close to home for me, really not just the physical aspect of nutrition, but the social parts of it. How do we share food and share connection with one another through food? And when you think about people that maybe are on a different diet or trying to eat with a diabetic friendly diet, and they're not able to share food with other people, it's a really heartbreaking thing for holistic well-being, not just our nutrition. Okay. Going into the discussion, um, as we talk about the stress process model, so this idea that as you experience different kinds of stress or more, more, um, you experience more types of stress, I should say, um, the effects of it become sort of multiplicative or they become worsened by more than it would if you're just experiencing those stresses separately. Our mixed methods approach emphasized the same idea that a single type of food stressor could affect the presence of additional stressors. So experiencing one of them meant you might be more likely to experience a specific other type of stressor. And of course that has impacts on our health. We also wanted to highlight that although food stress, which is really sort of a proxy for food security, that was a measure our community research council sort of adapted from the USDA food security module, it's often considered at the individual level. An individual's food insecure, they're not. Food stress is really more of a holistic concept that is related to the food environment of that individual and the collective well-being of the community. So that last quote I shared with you all about people talking about shared meals and how they weren't able to participate fully in shared meals because there might not be foods there for them, that really emphasizes that this whole concept of food stress isn't just at the individual level. It relates to family well-being and even community well-being. And Caitlin did such a great job at the beginning, again, highlighting this promise of food sovereignty initiatives and the revitalization of indigenous food sovereignty and our food systems as a, as a um, solution to a lot of the food system inequities our communities experience. Local food sovereignty initiatives really, in my mind, and I believe my co-authors' minds, is really the answer to a lot of these stressors and these problems. Working with local communities to improve food access, to provide nutrition and health education, and build community cohesiveness through a culturally sensitive and relevant way is really an important way we can think about addressing diabetes-related health outcomes. Then, okay. I know I talked really fast. I have a tendency to do that, but I that's all we have for slides, and we are open to discussion or questions. Wow, I did talk really fast. I'm looking at the time. I'm like, wow, I talked a lot faster than I planned to. Thank you so much. Um, as people have questions, if you want to put those in the chat or in the Q&A. Um, I know one question that I really had. Actually, can you all hear me? I realized I had my microphone a little high. Um, one question I had as you are thinking about food sovereignty, as you're thinking about maybe policy differences to change the community environment, to change the um, food environment, what recommend what key recommendations would you make? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So just to reflect, okay, so your question is when we're thinking about food sovereignty, what sort of policy and practice recommendations do we have? Is it, did mm-hmm. I understand that right? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's kind of the million dollar one. We're seeing some progress. So when I talked earlier about FIDIPR, I just touched on that briefly, the food distribution program on Indian reservations. You may also hear it referred to as commons or commodities. We're seeing some progress there where our traditional foods are now part of the USDA approved food package. So we're starting to see that, but sort of the thing that I think is missing is that it's not necessarily bringing jobs into our communities and it's not necessarily sourcing those foods from native food producers. And that's a sort of different thing because when you, you're you hiring a native food producer, you're sourcing from them. You're not just getting it from that one family. That one family has you know grandchildren and aunties and uncles that are part of that system. And so it's creating jobs and economic growth in the community that's really getting at the root issue of food insecurity rather than just addressing it at the individual level of, oh, you have food now. It's sort of getting at the community level. They have a capacity to address their own food systems issues and can reduce reliance on those. But that's like a really meta thought um, that I think is sort of difficult to achieve, but we're starting to see some of that. So um, Kavalin lives in Minneapolis and I lived there for a year as well. Um, They have a really amazing food program called Dream of Wild Health that has food shares of indigenous foods that are produced by that local community. And they provide it to people who are experiencing different kinds of food insecurity. Um, And I just talked a lot, Kavalin, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I was just thinking, um, and and I do come from sort of an urban frame when I'm thinking about this, but removing removing some structural barriers that make it difficult for communities to really own their food systems and operate with them within them. So for example, um, in Minneapolis, thinking about uh, changing zoning to make it easier for people to have um, urban community agriculture initiatives, making sure it's legal and accessible for people to have greenhouses. Um, so really thinking about like, what are these policy systems and environmental components that are getting in the way of individuals and communities, you know, taking control of their own food systems and how do we remove those um, so that people can really act on the knowledge that they have and the desire that they have to grow and cultivate um, nutritious foods for their families and communities. Yeah. And thank you. And then along that same line, it sounded like dietitians were giving advice that maybe wasn't um, something some of your participants were expressing they could implement. So what advice would you give to nutrition educators, to dietitians about considering the policy system and environmental factors when working with individual patients? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm, I want to be fully transparent. I'm not a trained dietitian. I'm a, I have a nutrition degree, but not in dietetics. Um, And one thing I think we need more of is sort of like a harm reduction approach to nutrition, like meeting people where they're at, knowing maybe they're getting that commodity food program where the resources are really limited, really emphasizing to them what you can do is great and really trying to emphasize or trying to address even some of the more holistic well-being, like emotional eating and coping with other emotions with kindness. So when you're thinking about something like diabetes distress, are there ways we can cope with stress that aren't related to our eating habits? Um, And I think, again, a lot of these reservation communities, food is really hard to access, especially fresh foods. So really highlighting the benefits of canned and frozen foods um, as being a harm reduction. I know we always want to give people fresh, but for some communities, that's just not the reality at this point in time. So highlighting that that's okay as well. Do you have anything else, Caitlin? 
Yeah, I would just add to really ask the patient questions about their food environment and situation to try to fully understand, um, you know, kind of what, where they're coming from and what resources they do have available. Maybe even, you know, ask, and maybe this is already happening, but ask like, what does a, a day's meal look like for you? So you have an understanding of what they usually eat and it can, you know, make some adjustments to um, things that are close to what they already um, consume. So it doesn't feel so far away from their reality. And then I'd also just mention within the reservation context, um, and this really came up when I was working on adapting a diabetes um, management and prevention program that was implemented on five reservation communities, um, not assuming that people get all of their food from the grocery store. Um, they're within rural reservation communities. There's more complex and really everywhere. There are more complex food systems. So understanding that people may be growing food, they may be hunting, they may be receiving food from, from friends and relatives, there might be farm stands. Um, so just recognizing that there are um, diverse food systems that they can draw on and helping people think through, you know, okay, maybe the grocery store has really poor quality produce. Is there a farm or, you know, could you grow some vegetables or does your neighbor grow vegetables or have blueberries in their backyard and really thinking creatively about how people are sourcing food as well. Yeah, that's a great thought. Thank you. So one listener said, I'm curious about minimal changes over the four waves of diabetes distress. Um, thoughts on why? So predominantly related to lack of food access. And they said they don't recall if there was any educational component once they were diagnosed with diabetes. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, one thing I think that's potentially um, maybe why we're missing some of that variability is our average participant was 1.6 years after they were diagnosed with diabetes. So a lot of people, when they first experience that diagnosis, there's a big uptick in stress, and then maybe it kind of levels out over time. Um, and so we maybe just hit that part where people were consistently at that same level of distress because they were maybe used to managing it. However, I would say um, you said predominantly related to lack of food access was the next part of that question. And yeah, so um, there's a lot of, um, there's a study by Jernigan, Valerie Jernigan, it was a few years ago, but they found that compared to other races, Native peoples experience food insecurity at a more consistent rate over time. So we often think about food insecurity as a very transient state. People are food insecure for a few weeks, they get their benefits, and then they're food secure again, and then they're food insecure again. So there's kind of a lot of transience to it. But with Native peoples, there really wasn't that. There was a lot of consistent food insecurity. And so I think that's probably also related is that there is a very consistent level of food stress, and that probably related to a very consistent level of diabetes distress. Um, and as far as if there was an educational component, um, Caitlin, correct me if I'm wrong, we wrote this paper a few years ago, but this, um, our data was from an observational study. So I don't believe they were actually intervening or at least our team was not intervening. Um, their own tribal communities may have had educational components, but that wasn't part of our study. Yes, correct. This was not an intervention study. So we, um, the study team didn't implement any educational components. However, because we were partnering closely with the tribal clinics in each community, I'm sure they had sort of standard of care um, diabetes education with their own staff. Yeah, absolutely. And then another question, how can commodity-based food programs implement um, cultural identity for the Native population with conditions such as diabetes? It feels like this is always a constant barrier that should be addressed when providing commodity-based assistance with these individuals. Yeah, 
Um, that's a great question. I will say like, as much as there's things we want them to do better, I've seen such great strides even in my lifetime. Like I remember when my grandma would get commands, there'd be like that pack of that hunk of commodity cheese and the foil. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. It's gross. Um, so I feel like we've made a lot of really great strides where now people, I live in Sault Ste. Marie, so that's where my home tribal community is. And the FIDIPR program, you look at the food they're eating and it's so healthy in a lot of ways. It's like its own grocery store. People are getting walleye, they're getting wild rice, they're getting venison, they're getting all these amazing foods in there. And so we're seeing that sort of come back. We're seeing increased access to our traditional foods. But I think the part that's sort of missing, and we touched on this a little bit about intergenerational food knowledge, there's a lot of people that don't have that because of various reasons for disconnection, the Urban Indian Relocation Program being one of them, and then the boarding school generation. So I think there also needs to be, in parallel to increasing access to traditional foods, there needs to also be that educational component of these are our traditional foods, and this is why, and this is what it means, and this is how we harvest it. Here's the teachings that go with it. Here's the ceremony that goes with it, sort of bringing it all together. Um, and that's, of course, really complicated. And how do you do that all at once? I don't think any of us know. Um, but we do see um, there's a really great program in the Midwest called the 13 Moons of Anishinaabe Cooking. And it's a curriculum specifically designed to meet the SNAP education requirements. Um, and it goes through our traditional foods with every moon cycle and teaches people how to prepare them as well as some of the teachings alongside that. Um, so I don't think I have as many answers to your question as I do um, more more areas for future research and work. Yeah, definitely an area to keep working. Um, where would, so the, you said, where would people find that resource? So that particular curriculum, the 13 Moons of Anishinaabe cooking curriculum is actually fairly secretive. Um, I worked with it when I worked in Detroit at the Urban Indian Health Program. We use that as part of our food sovereignty program, but they don't make it widely available. And um, it was developed by White Earth Nation, and I'm not entirely sure of the reasons for that, but I suspect that a lot of it is some of our cultural teachings and stories are only told when there's snow on the ground. And so that gets really complicated if you make a resource available online, because that maybe violates a cultural protocol if people were to use that incorrectly. Um, so I'm not totally sure why they don't make it widely available, but I do know um, there's actually a PhD student I know at or Michigan State University is doing a, an evaluation of that study as part of her dissertation. So I know it's starting to be out there and I know it's also available upon request. So you could reach out to them and then keep on. I didn't give you a chance to answer that. Did you have anything to add? Um, sure. Yeah. So I would just mention, um, and I'm not well-versed in the operations of the commodity program either. So I don't know if this is you know fully functioning across the country, but just recognizing that each indigenous community throughout the United States um, has very unique and different food, traditional foods and traditional food needs. And so being able to sort of tailor those food packages to those communities' specific traditional foods would be important. So for example, here in the Midwest, like blueberries, venison, wild rice are traditional foods, but those are very different than the traditional foods of you know, um, tribes in the West or in other places in the country. So really being able to tailor, um, you know, have conversations with individuals from those communities and tailor the food packages to their specific traditional foods. Well, thank you so much. It is great to see um, this work being done. And I appreciate both of you sharing your expertise with us today. Um, I think that is all the questions that we have. So at this point, I can pass it back to Paul. Uh, thank you, Kristen. And thank you once again to both of our presenters today. Uh, we really do appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. 
and I just have a few reminders as we close out today's session. Uh, again, please complete the survey you'll receive when we close out today's session. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. Be on the lookout for an email with today's recording, uh, handouts, and your CEU certificate. Uh, if you enjoyed today's webinar, be sure to check out the upcoming webinar section of the website. Uh, next week, we are actually hosting a special session on publishing with JNAB. Uh, and with that being said, that concludes today's session. Thank you for joining us and have a great day.